Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Hey, everybody. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Can you guess what passage in Ephesians we're talking about today? That's right. We are in the last passage of the book. It's the last passage in the series. There's still one more week to go where Denise and John are going to be interviewing Dr. Timothy Gombas just next week. But this is it today, the last passage in the book. I hope that it has been very enriching for you going through this series. Personally, I love the book of Ephesians. It's played an important role in my own story of faith. And I wouldn't be surprised if it has for you too. In fact, when the teaching team was getting together and talking about this sermon series before it was coming up, we realized for all of us, we're like, yeah, the book of Ephesians has played some kind of unique role in our journey. Now, when I was in my undergrad, I took this class called Advanced Bible Study Methods. And in that class, we spent the whole semester in the book of Ephesians looking at every single detail that we could. Every assignment was based on the book of Ephesians. Um, it was my first in-depth look at that book. Now, I got kind of a delayed start to school. So I was in my late 20s at that time. And around that period, I was just asking a lot of questions myself, like, what's my value? What's my worth? What is it that I have to offer to anyone? You know, those life questions, maybe you've asked similar questions in your own life. Well, it was Ephesians that helped me to understand who I am in Christ and that my worth was foundationally in the very real love that God has for me, has for you and everybody around us. I mean, I can picture where I was walking on campus when some of these thoughts connected deep into my heart. I can picture talking with my friend in the cafeteria and what table we were sitting at when he was just saying things about the book of Ephesians that had a deep impact on me. Later on, I got to work for the professor um, who taught that class. And under his supervision, I was actually able to teach the class myself which just meant more time reading and studying Ephesians and my passion just growing for it as I was teaching it. Then in my third year of Greek studies, I took a class called Greek Exegesis, which really is just all the details of Greek interpretation. And in that class, again, we spent the entire semester studying the book of Ephesians, but this time in Greek. I had to go through and parse every single word in the book, I had to diagram every single sentence in the book. I had to look at all the different sections and give thought and write out interpretive statements um, about the whole book. It was a lot of detail. And at the end, I had to write a 25-page exegetical paper on this passage that we're looking at today. Even after all of that, I feel like there is still so much more to learn. And even in preparing for this sermon, I was learning so much more 
about this passage. And there's still so much personal meaning and impact for me in this book. I've been reading through the letter again and again and again as we go through this series. And God has just been teaching me and correcting me and loving me through these words. I hope that you've been able to have an experience like that as well. So I'm excited to share with you today. I would love it if you would open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter six so that you can follow and read along with us. But first, let's do a little bit of a recap on what we have experienced in our series on Ephesians called Practicing, no, it's called Resurrecting Church. I know the name of our series, don't worry about that. So this whole series has been focused on the vision that Ephesians lays out for the church and how we are to live our lives as a result of that. And we've done this series at this time because like, I don't know, the last 15 months have been kind of weird for the church. And we're getting back to in-person things and more and more people are coming back every Sunday. And as we're getting back, we wanna be the church that God is calling us to be. And the book of Ephesians can help give some shape to that, to inform us on who we are to be as a church. Now, we generally like to review where we've been in the series, but we've been through a lot. We've been through eight weeks in Ephesians, and I don't want to summarize every single sermon. So instead, here are just some kind of some words and phrases that stick out from all of the things that we've been looking at in the book of Ephesians. And we'll start out with the seven verbal rockets that John outlined in chapter one. Blessed, chose, destined, given, lavished, made known, bring unity, apocalyptic, bigger story, grace, prayer, power, weakness, unity, peace, faith, inheritance, mystery, wisdom, humility, love of God, walking worthy, holiness, light and darkness, truth, submission, and there's one more, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, Jesus, yeah, that's right, Jesus, is the most important. Not just because he's Jesus, but in the book of Ephesians, Jesus is emphasized in a particular way. The overarching theme of the letter is that God is bringing unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. All things are being brought together in Christ. The focus is very clearly on Jesus throughout, the one who is raised from the dead and placed over every rule and authority. So it makes sense that as we come to our final passage in Ephesians today, we'll see that Jesus is still the central figure throughout. All right, let's do our public reading of scripture now. Chris is going to do that reading for us, and you can follow along in Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10. Today's scripture is Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace." In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chris. Now, this is a really popular passage. It's well known. It's near and dear to people. Sometimes, you know, it's hard to preach on a passage like that because if you push on someone's understanding of the passage, it can cause some tension with people because they love it so much. There are certain images and feelings this passage may conjure up for you. Maybe it's something like this army commercial. I am an army of one. Who I am has become better than who I was. And I'll be the first to tell you, the might of the U.S. Army doesn't lie in numbers. It lies in me. Maybe this passage makes you feel like you're in the military. God's army. You're God's soldier fighting the good fight. You are an army of one. It's you and the Lord who is strengthening you for battle. Maybe you picture yourself in something like this. This actually belongs to one of our elders, Mark Rogers. And if you want to know why he has a suit of armor, I will let you ask him. But he was gracious enough to let us borrow it during this, during this time. Now, maybe you've seen images of armor like this related to this passage. There are lots of different examples out there. You know, here's the helmet of salvation. Here's the breastplate of righteousness and so on. And there, there are thorough explanations of how each piece relates to Roman arm, armor. And each individual piece protects a certain part of the body. And we need to employ certain ones at particular times, depending on what our individual circumstances are. Well, now that we've gone through all of the trouble of getting this here and setting it up, I actually want you to disassociate this image from this passage in your mind. This is not quite the right image of what this passage is meant to convey. I mean, first of all, it's totally the wrong time period. But secondly, the armor in this passage isn't something that you and I individually put on. It's not exactly our armor. Let me explain that a little bit. Now, the book of Isaiah is one of the books in the Old Testament that we call prophetic books. It's a long book, there's a lot to digest in there, but it's one of the New Testament author's favorite books in the Old Testament. In fact, just behind the Psalms, it is the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. The book has a lot to do with God's judgment on Israel before all the different ways that they have turned away from God but it's also full of incredible hope that God offers to his people that will trust in him. 
He will redeem them. And he will do so through his servant. This servant is somebody who's going to suffer and even die. But afterward, they're alive again and they, they share in the praise and the glory of Yahweh himself. Now, the lines blur a little bit in Isaiah on whether Yahweh himself is doing something or if it's, servant, if it's his servant doing something. But together, they kind of form this image of a divine warrior. And the description of the divine warrior or what he's saying looks a little bit like this. In Isaiah 11, the prophet is talking about the promised Messiah to come. That is the servant in Isaiah. It says, righteousness will be his belt and truth the sash around his waist. In Isaiah 49, it's written as if the servant himself is speaking. And it says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In Isaiah 52, there's a depiction of what people do when God begins to rule through his servant. And it says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach the gospel, who proclaim peace. And finally, in Isaiah 59, there's a description of Yahweh himself as the divine warrior. It says, he puts on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Any of this sounding familiar to you? Look at it in comparison to Ephesians chapter 6. There you've got the, the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness. You've got feet that are bringing the gospel of peace. There's a helmet of salvation. There's a sword, and that is the word or the mouth. Paul is describing the armor of the divine warrior in Isaiah. Remember that I said that Jesus has been the central figure in the whole book of Ephesians. Everything is being summed up in him. So when it comes to the end of the book where things are being summed up, we should expect that that will still be the case. And indeed, it very much is the case. Jesus is the central figure. The armor, it isn't my armor. That's not my armor. It's not your armor. The armor is his armor, the divine warrior, Jesus. In verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of, of who? Of God. It's God's armor. It's not really my size. It's a little bit too big for me. Actually, Mark says that this is made for someone who's six foot, six inches tall. Now, Mark isn't 6'6", six, six, but he said he did try it on once. And yeah, he's like, it's too big for me. To take up the battle ourselves, to put on the armor ourselves, is a bigger task than we're ready for. It's not a fight we could win. If we could win it, humanity would have already won it. But we never could. God doesn't accomplish his victory through us. Jesus has the victory. He is the one. He's the one who conquered the enemy. 
He's the one who, who is placed above every power and authority. He is the only one who is able to do it. This passage is solidly about who Jesus is. But you say, oh, come on, Mike. It says right there, put on the armor of God. We're told to put it on. All right, you got me. It's, that's true. It says that. In fact, it says it twice in verse 11 and in verse 13. What does this mean to put on the armor of God? I think it's connected to another phrase that we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, put on the new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. So the armor of God isn't the only thing that we're told to put on. We're told to put on the new self that is in the likeness of God. This is actually a huge theological concept here to put off The old self is to disassociate, to unidentify with Adam and death. That's the old humanity. To put on the new self is to identify with the new Adam, which is Jesus, the new humanity, and to receive his life that he offers. When we do that, we are in Christ, and we are being formed into the image of God, which is in righteousness and holiness. That phrase, in Christ, is one that we've seen several times in Ephesians. It defines what our identity is um, as followers of Jesus. In Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, are chosen by God, are adopted children of God, We are redeemed and forgiven. We bring glory to God. We are included in the household of God. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are given an inheritance. We have resurrection power. We're brought from death to life. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We are brought near to God. We are the dwelling place of God with all other believers, which is the church. That's just Ephesians 1 and 2. Putting on the armor of God is about union with Christ. When we put on the new self and identify ourselves with Jesus, we are wearing the armor of God in Christ. What is true of Christ becomes true of us. He's the beloved of God. I'm the beloved of God. He's seated in the heavenly realms. I'm seated in the heavenly realms. He's wearing his armor. I'm wearing his armor. If you want to feel secure in your identity and in your worth, you will find it in Christ. Every other place where you try to find your identity will let you down in comparison. This is one of the things that has had had such a lasting personal impact for me when I was first studying Ephesians all those years ago. When I realized that God saw me as he saw his own beloved son, Jesus, I was was able to understand my life in different terms than what I had been viewing it as. I was able to enter into a different narrative, a better story. But there's also a whole nother layer to this as well. 
We've pointed out in this series that this letter is not written primarily to individuals, but to the church. Everything is plural in the letter. The things which we are called to, we are called to do as a community in the church. This is the point of chapters two and four. God is bringing all people who have allegiance to Jesus together into one dwelling place of God. In chapter two, we're compared to a temple and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In chapters one and four, we are called the body of Christ with Jesus being the head. Are you picking up on the imagery here? What does armor go on? It goes on a body. It goes on Christ's body, which is the church. Jesus is the divine warrior who has victory. It's his armor that he is wearing. But the church is his body on which that armor resides. We're not in this battle as individuals. We are in this as the church. We are not an army of one. That is mission failure. We are dependent upon each other and we're dependent upon Christ. That means we, as a church, are to exhibit the attributes of the armor that are mentioned here in chapter six. This helps us to see who we are as the church. These attributes of the armor also kind of help us tame down the metaphor a little bit. I mean, if you think the life of the Christian is a militant life, just look at the kind of armor and the kind of battle that we're in. And we'll get to the battle in just a little bit, but let's look at the armor itself first. The armor, or at least what it represents, isn't something new at this point in the letter. It's a summary of what Paul has already been writing about up to this point. He's reminding the reader of these important themes that have been expressed throughout the letter in this metaphor of the armor. So what is the armor? It's truth, it's righteousness, the gospel, peace, faith or trust, salvation in the word of God. These aren't the kinds of things you attack with. Go hit them with our peace. These are aspects of life, of the, uh, of the life of someone who's got the new self put on them that we as the whole church embody together. The more we press into that union with Christ and the more we grow together in unity as a church, the more we will be a community of truth, one that lives in the light and not in darkness. We aren't a community of deceit, but we are a community that shares the truth in love. Community of righteousness, we practice righteousness and justice in the way that we care for others. A community that has the gospel of peace. We share that God has brought peace through Jesus and we live in unity with one another in the church. Faith. We trust that God is good and we trust who we are in Christ. A community of salvation. We live in the victory that Jesus has accomplished. 
and were attentive and obedient to the word of God. But this isn't individual piety. This is who we are together as the people of God. Tim Gombas says on this uh, passage, our warfare then involves purposefully growing into communities that become more faithful corporate performances of Jesus on earth. And it's important that we know that and that we live that together as the church because we're told that the armor is important so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The passage goes on. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What is going on here? Not visible forces, but spiritual forces of evil. There's an unseen realm, as one scholar likes to put it. Honestly, this has little to do with the serpent, but it reminds me of a news story that I saw recently. Did you see this at all? An Italian artist auctioned off an invisible sculpture for $18,300. It's made literally of nothing. It cracks me up every time I hear that. It's just crazy in my opinion. But what Paul is writing about here is not crazy. There is activity and characters at play that we can't see or touch or sense, but that doesn't mean they aren't real and important. Honestly, I wish I had three more hours here so I could be able to go through what all the rulers and authorities and dark powers, spiritual forces of evil, because there's a whole theology to explore, but we've already touched on it a couple of times in this series, and it ties into what we've said about being a part of a bigger story. What we see isn't everything. There's more there, there's more at play. The things and people who we think are enemies are nothing compared to these enemies. Now, whatever's happening in that spiritual realm, it centers around the schemes of the devil. The word for scheme we've already seen in Ephesians back in chapter four. It says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. The primary thing that the devil does is deceitful. It's untrue. It's a lie. It's meant to trick us, which means that it's not an obvious thing to see. The devil isn't an obvious enemy. We won't always recognize the handiwork as coming from him. As Eugene Peterson says, Paul is calling us to be a part, uh, calling us to be alert to the evil that, in fact, looks like the good. And as Paul says elsewhere, Satan himself 
masquerades as an angel of light. What are the schemes, though? Well, I mean, without getting into a whole biblical theology about it, the best way that we can see it within this context of Ephesians is to view them as the opposite of the things that Paul has been espousing in his letter. He's encouraging things that are opposite to what the devil would scheme. He's addressing those throughout. And even more directly, you could view them as the opposite of the armor in this passage. Both will end up being the same thing, and both actually line up well with what we would see of the devil or Satan in the rest of the Bible. So if the armor of God consists of truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith or trust, salvation, and the word of God, then the schemes of the devil result in deceit, injustice, disunity, distrust of God, separation, and disobedience. The results are identifiable, but what leads to them isn't always so identifiable. That's why they're called schemes. Truth is good, but it can be used to cause disunity. Righteousness is good, but it can be used to cause separation. That's why it's important to understand that the armor isn't something that we use in specific battles that we have to identify. But it's instead, it's instead, it's about who we are becoming. It's our internal character, not our external activity. Eugene Peterson, to quote him again, says in this passage, the armor of God is the embodiment, the internalization of the life of the Trinity. The best defense against the schemes of the devil is a life and community formed by God. All right, let's wrap this up. It's only getting hotter outside right now. Why is this passage here? Why is Paul communicating this? Let's look at the first verse in this section. Verse 10, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Mighty power has been a theme throughout the book. Jesus has achieved the victory over every scheme of the devil and over, over every power and authority out there. And yet we're told that we still need to be strong. Why? Because we live in the tension before our victorious king returns. Paul's still in prison. He's going to say just a few verses later in verse 20 that he's an ambassador in chains. We need to be strong because the devil is still working his schemes. Because life is still hard. Because you're tired. Because of the church and, and life and community is difficult. Because peace and unity is difficult. It's easier just to write people off. Because the hard things in life make us question if God is good and if he really loves us. So we're told to be strong. Or more precisely, actually, we're told to 
be strengthened. This is a passive verb, which means you don't go like this to be strong. You go like this to be strong. Lord, please strengthen me. We experience the strength of the Lord through the armor, which is the character of Christ. As the character is formed in us individually and as a church, we are strengthened for the difficult times. And we're able to stand, which is a word that appears four times in this passage, once in verse 11, twice in verse 13, and once in verse 14. This passage is all about perseverance in the midst of the bad and the evil and the hard things that the church would face and that any individual would really face either. Will we be a church that succumbs to the ways of the rulers, the powers and authorities, which remember are schemes so they look good? Or will we be a church that humbly follows Jesus and takes on his character. We can do that. We can humbly follow Jesus with confidence and not follow the ways of the world because Jesus has the victory. The divine warrior has won. We don't need to win the battle. So what challenges, what difficulties are you experiencing? In what ways have you fallen for the lies and the schemes of the devil? In what ways do you need to stand or to be strengthened or to persevere in your own life? If there's any lesson that we've learned in Ephesians, it's that you'll need the community of the church in order to stand. We do it together as we wear the armor of God. That important moment in my life when God was using this word in Ephesians to encourage me and to strengthen me by showing me that his love in Christ, it didn't happen in isolation. It happened in the context of community. If you're on the periphery of this church community, I encourage you to lean in. The periphery is kind of like the weak parts of the armor. They're exposed, they're vulnerable. If church for you is mostly about coming to the show on Sunday, I encourage you to participate in this community. Begin investing yourself in it so that we're all stronger together and able to stand in the day of evil. Now, many of you watching online are watching out of necessity, and I'm so glad that we're able to provide this resource for you. But if you're watching online out of convenience, come be a part of what's happening here not because it's any more dramatic here in person, but it's actually just because of those small yet important, sometimes mundane points of connection that make us stronger together. We're not an army of one. We can't withstand on our own. We're in this 
together. Let's lean in. Please join me in prayer. Our loving Father, God, your Son, Jesus, has the victory. You have accomplished that through him. He is above all rule and authority. We trust that and all of our hope is in that. Help us to humbly follow your Son, Jesus, our King and our Lord. Thank you for the presence of your Spirit constantly moving and active, not only in our lives, but in the life of the church. God, I pray, Father, for, for the things that you desire to be done here at New Hope. God, that this church would be what you'd want it to be, even though it will always be flawed. There'll always be, there'll always be difficulties. God, but this is your church. You love your church. It's your bride, Jesus. And we, we just submit to you humbly. We want to follow you, and we love you. Amen.